0: And Emily that you're Jodie J. Sperling, and I'm Jodie J. Sperling.
1: <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What?
0: There's something I would like to show you. Something that would change everything you think you know about yourself.
1: You may have noticed we're doing something slightly different with today's episode. I recorded this interview with Jody J. Sperling, time-lapse dancer. Before I restructured my show to be the reluctant book marketer. But this one has been lingering with me because I think that Jody has so many valuable insights to share about the artistic process and the mindset behind it. So I edited this episode to focus your listening experience on Jody's responses, and I took myself out as the interviewer. So what you're going to hear is a voiceover episode for the first time ever on The Reluctant Book Marketer. I hope you enjoy my voiceover episode with Jody J. Sperling. Hey, I'm The Reluctant Book Marketer, and I've got just one question for you. Do you see your novel as a million dollar asset? Because if you don't, and you want to, you're in the right place. This is the only show for novelists who want to shift their mindset away from fear and toward abundance. Because you can sell more books than you ever dreamed when you believe in what you're doing.
0: My uh f- real first name on my birth certificate is Johanna, which I suspect is not yours but my parents always called me Jody, and I don't know if this was the case for you, but my mother saw the movie The Red Pony and uh, which is based on a, a story and uh, that made the protagonist is is Jody
1: as writers, we often find that it is challenging to embrace the style that we naturally gravitate toward in composing our novels. And oftentimes you can try to look over the fence or into the other pasture and see that things are greener, that they're better doing it a different way. And that's what I brought to this moment talking with Jodi. I explained to her my feelings about dancing and how uncomfortable I am in my own body, that I can't move and that I'm super self-conscious when music plays and people are around me moving to that music because I don't feel the rhythm. And this response, I think, so perfectly encapsulates what it is like to be an artist and to embrace that maybe our way isn't everybody's way but if we can get over our self-consciousness and our belief that we're doing it wrong something beautiful can happen
0: i have to, i would not be doing my duty as a person in the field of dance if i didn't invite you in some way to find a new relationship with movement and to understand that even though you think that you don't have rhythm, you do have rhythm because if you didn't have rhythm, your heart would not be beating right now, right? And you would not be taking regular breaths and your neurons would not be firing so that there's already multiple layers of rhythm, you know, and polyrhythms happening in you that you're activating all the time. And, and dance is really something that um, is and can be and should be accessible to all. And it's only, in our culture that we've sort of, in some ways, the elevation of dance as an art form has uh, maybe pushed it out of people's daily lives. But I really believe strongly that dance can and should be a part of everybody's daily life and, um, and that everybody has a, a way in. And this sort of sense of inadequacy or feeling self-conscious about not having rhythm or not being able to dance is, is something that can really be shed. and and is an unfortunate consequence.
1: As writers, the work that we do can feel utterly lonely, and there are times and ways in which it might even feel futile. We put words on a page or on a screen, and we build those words into a coherent plot, but we don't know when we deliver that plot to a reader If they are experiencing what we are experiencing. And I love hearing Jodi's response to her art of dancing about the impact of what we are doing and the butterfly wings and that whole butterfly effect. So when you're writing, the mindset piece here is to acknowledge that your words have a ripple effect on the readers. And we are making a communal connection to one another
0: when you move, your body extends into space and your limbs take up a certain amount of space around your body. And when you dance, that area is called your kinesphere. And it sort of goes back to uh, a theory of dance uh, analysis and codification that was developed by Rudolf von Laban, and it's called Laban Analysis. So people in the dance world understand this idea of kinesphere what I also realized that you have a kind of energetic impact in the space. So it's not just that you are, are, you know, if you were to draw like a 3D uh, time lapse or slow uh, uh, shutter speed, you know, kind of capture of the movement, you might see this sort of sculptural form of the action. It's also that when you move, you are literally moving the atmosphere around you. And you're creating this kind of Larger it's you know, every single thing in the universe is connected to every other thing in the universe right and it's this idea of butterfly flaps its wings, and that has a material consequence. And I'm not talking about in a spiritual I am actually talking about in a very literal way, although it is that kind of concept is foundational to a lot of different kind of um, spiritual inquiries right this idea of interconnectedness. Um, But the way that I got into this idea of using costumes that help visualize the impacts that um, any mover, any human mover, any animal mover has in space uh, is very, it's a very uh, sort of serendipitous encounter that I had with um, an artist who was very popular at the turn of the last century. So let's say from about the 1890s to the 1920s, there was an artist, uh, her name is Louie Fuller, and she created uh, essentially a whole new genre of performance that drew on, um, actually, it's un- it's interesting, there's sort of a reevaluation now, or sort of uh, to acknowledge, she that drew on the costuming of notch dancing, which was a kind of uh, Indian um, solo dance form, but also on uh, skirt dancing. And she took these sort of large skirts of the dancers and she expanded those costumes and to, kind of what you might think of as capes or ponchos <laughs> or large dresses with sticks inserted into the into the costume so that they expanded literally out. So she was like a butterfly or an angel or a bird you might think. And when she whirled around in those costumes, she created larger than life spiraling sculptural forms. And she was a pioneer of uh, performance technology. And so she created a lot of uh, Apparatuses for, uh, you know, lighting design and for projection elements, and so she was doing these incredible multimedia performances. You know, um, late, you know, eighteen nineties, uh, early nineteen hundreds, and was depicted by so many different artists and so many different media. Was influential on Art Nouveau and Cubism and um, Symbolism, and uh, was really um, had this incredible legacy. Uh, But, you know, her sort of name itself, like our name, which is always ascendant, (laughs) uh, was sort of has gone through periods of being more familiar or less familiar to people. Although I think her name recently is in a huge resurgence. Um, And so anyway, so I encountered Louie Fuller serendipitously um, a long time ago. Trying to think what it was, in uh, actually, 1997. It was a uh, I was working on a project. It was a book publishing project, and the editor of this book was Elizabeth. It was a International Encyclopedia of Dance, and the editor put a picture of Lois Fuller on my desk and suggested um, she had a gig. Her name was Elizabeth Aldridge. and she had a gig at the Library of Congress to celebrate the centennial of the. Jefferson building and it, she was putting on a whole suite of dances that were supposed to evoke 1897 and so she created a costume for me that was a sort of a butterfly dance <laughs> and we uh, did this together and we perf- I performed it in the Library of Congress in 1997 in a very large butterfly costume with enormous pink wings and a little green skull cap and antenna and there was a Orchestra playing "Ride of the Valkyries," <laughs> and I and I unfurled my massive wings and I whirled around in the rotunda, and it was so entire like incredible and as an experience to feel so big in this vast space and to take up so much room that it changed my whole life <laughs> because all of a sudden I, you know, I had been a modern avant-garde postmodern I don't know whatever you want to call it kind of dancer where I was rolling around on the ground I was doing content improv I was trying not to be too pretty and here I all of a sudden was transformed into this gigantic um, force and so I really wanted to delve into exploring what that was about and it began a kind of inquiry that is continuing to this day all you know 25 years later and so as I if you look at the sort of time lapse of my work. And I call my company Time Lapse Stance because I'm interested in this way that the present and the past are connected on this trajectory. And I think if you can visualize that trajectory, then you can understand the kind of forces that are at play and are influencing you. And so I was interested in exploring the relationship between Lowy Fuller as a historical figure and how that could relate to contemporary um, dance or contemporary aesthetics starting in the the 1990s and over the last um, 25 years. So about a decade or so ago, I became interested in, well, I've always been concerned about climate change. Around a decade ago, I started to think about these these very large costuming in, in relationship to atmospheric forces. And so as I, you know, from this first experiment, first going into uh, different uh, avenues, first I kind of reconstructed Louis Fuller's first dance, just to kind of get a sense of what that was. I did a project that was using period magic lantern projections. I did a project that was very much kind of trying to capture the fin de kind of aesthetic. I did a project that was, um, starting to work with groups uh, using experimental music, different rhythms. And then I got into this exploration of what we were talking about at the beginning, this idea that when you move through space, you displace air and you can't see that, but it doesn't mean just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real and it's not happening. And so I started to use the choreographic patterns to visualize that atmospheric impact that you can't see and the cut what was great was that the fabric does it for you right so if if the, it's like and a plastic bag too you see you don't know that the wind is blowing or that there's an eddy or a gust but you can see the plastic bag just kind of swirling in the air you all of a sudden know how the wind is moving and so I became kind of evoking time lapses um, that they could um, evoke a time lapse of uh, wind currents or um, melting ice or um, lava flowing, and just thinking about um, the way that these sort of geophysical patterns that humans can do. <laughs> and so in 2014, I got invited to participate in a polar science mission to the Chukchi Sea, which is north of Alaska. And I had a chance to bring this sort of Lowy apparatus, this kinosphere expanding costume, literally into. Uh, new environment for me. And I danced on sea ice, which is at that time was about 1.2 to 1.5 meters thick. Although in previous decades, the, where I was would have been 10 meters thick. And now um, most of the area where we were is sort of in the peripheral ice pack. It's um, it's all sort of first year ice, freezing and thawing. and And it's not refreezing in the area where I was as much so just to think of when you see the video of me dancing on the ice and it looks like land in fact somebody I, somebody would refer to it as like oh you were on the tundra and I was like no that's not tundra that's sea ice <laughs> that's the that's an ocean you know that were that I'm on while I was on that um, mission I had a chance to learn more about Arctic science um, ice physics um, and then I was able to incorporate that research into choreography. And from that point, uh, my work has really shifted to um, finding ways to create works that both cultivate empathy for the geophysical. So thinking about not just, it's not just polar bears that are, um, uh, we should be sad about, it's also the ice itself. And so sort of trying to understand and, and, uh, the choreography is also is about evoking these patterns through human form and i think that as humans we really are much more tuned into what other humans are thinking and feeling and so when we rep- and we have an immediate response when we see another human moving we move along with that person it's called kinesthetic identification so you know if you see a dancer leap a little piece of you sort of leaps with them and you feel that sense of soaring and so I think that we can um, harness that appreciation that humans have for one another in their in their body of experiences toward cultivating empathy for um, for the planet.
1: as writers we're all too familiar with the feeling of leaping as we read a work that touches our emotions. And that's what we're trying to do in our composition. And that's what we're trying to do as marketers is to take our message and convey it in such a way that people think this is the exact book I need to buy. And whether your message is global and you want to speak to somebody through your fiction about the importance of taking care of the planet, or you simply want to write a beautiful tale that entertains and helps people escape the daily grind, this ability to connect with others is where all the good stuff happens.
0: So I went to Wesleyan University where um, dance is a big part of the culture of the campus, and they had a big reunion a few number of years ago. And all people who had taken dance, not just dance majors and people who were in all different fields, came together and we all did a big improv jam. And I remember talking with a fellow afterwards who was a writer, and he said the most important class he took at Wesleyan for his writing was uh, dance
1: composition. Wait, say that again? Dance is the most important class a writer took for his own writing career if you're not listening already it's time to start
0: and i think that what um good writing moves it moves you and so understanding that embodied experience and i i took a lot of um I have, uh, I write about dance and um, I used to write dance criticism and a big part of writing dance criticism for me was if you see it and I have the vocabulary and the understanding familiarity with dance to see it and to kind of remember it and to know what they were doing, but to get at the quality, you actually have to kind of get up and be like, was it like this or was it like that? And then once you do it, then I could describe
1: it. As writers, we're all familiar with that feeling of not knowing how to bring a passage to life until you see somebody else do it and having that moment of inspiration. So this was such a relatable moment in Jody's discussion with me. And that led to the question of what is the most important part of being an artist and how do we make the most out of the artistic soup in our brain
0: part of being an artist is always putting yourself out there and and dealing with the kind of but I think it's it's probably true in all um uh fields um but I do I do feel I was very strongly discouraged from being a dancer (laughs) my grandfather um was uh he was very funny he would he would, he's from Vienna, and he would say this uh, in his accent. He would tell me these sort of parables of how when he was a young boy in gymnasium, he wanted to be a poet, but then he was so happy that his teacher told him he no, had no talent. And he would tell this to me in, in music and theater. He would always tell this. He was always trying to give me a hint, you know, like, go to medical school. <laughs> And, you know, and I didn't have the right body to be a ballet dancer and I was studying ballet. And so my ballet teacher was not the most encouraging, but I, for some reason, I just kept going at it because I just love to dance. I love to move. And what I've discovered, and I've always been interested in visual arts. And what I realized is that choreography is this magic uh. I don't even want to say medium, but it's form that combines all the great things of all the arts. It combines movement and the love of dance with the music and a love of music and theater and a love of drama and storytelling and visual design and, um, and creating spectacle. So for me, choreography is just this amalgam of everything that is really uh, wonderful about all the arts. And bringing it together in one thing.
1: What do I have to say in conclusion? After Jody and I spoke for well over an hour, I have distilled this conversation down to just a little over 21 minutes of gold nuggets that can help you as a writer to think about your novel in a different way, to explore how different art forms might help you access your niche reader. How you can expand your definition of what you're doing to appeal to more people. And I'm so grateful for Jodi giving us the time and her energy to explore her art and relate it to what we are doing. At some point, I want to go ahead and post the entire interview raw and uncut because there was so much about the pandemic when we recorded, so much about COVID that wasn't over that I just had to cut out because it didn't make perfect sense for the time that we're in right now. But I want to tell you, if you are interested in learning more about dance and how it can improve you as a novelist, check Jody Sperling out on the time-lapse dance website and follow her. Watch her dances on YouTube. I will have all of those resources available through the show notes.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you, Jody Sperling.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a big favor right now. Click on the follow button in whatever podcast app you're listening on.